0: After investigating more than 4,000 years of Chinese history for his new documentary
1: series, Michael Wood was struck by what has endured through the centuries. Whatever troubles it's gone through, the Chinese people have never lost that sense that they belong to a single civilization. Coming up, we see how one of the world's oldest countries is ready for a
0: new role on the international stage. Ever thought of taking your children with you on an overseas vacation?
2: I think that having all those cohesive family memories is one of the best parts of all our travels.
0: We'll get ideas for having travel fun with the little ones from two well-traveled moms. To save money on roaming charges, you could try using a local SIM card in your
3: cell phone. I found that international plans offered by American carriers never quite seem to be a very good deal in relation to how cheap it is to call and get data while you're over in Europe. My son
0: Andy Steves shares tech tips the younger generation have built into their travels. The generations come together in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The world's oldest nation is changing so fast it's hard to keep up. Historian Michael Wood shares his impressions of China after two years of filming his latest documentary series there. And a pair of moms explain how to enjoy taking young children along on your next European vacation with a minimum of tears. It's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Travelers used to think a Swiss army knife was the one thing you needed. Today, it's a cell phone. My son, Andy Steves, joins us now with a millennial's view of using technology to enhance your travels.
3: Hey, Andy. Hey, Dad. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to be here.
0: As a tour guide, you lead hundreds of college-age students around Europe every year. How does the tech and all these screens that these people are looking at help or hinder their travels?
3: Technology helps you make reservations on the fly as you travel around, but it can also prevent you and make it more difficult to connect with locals along the way if you're not careful.
0: So you need to be careful that this screen doesn't actually put a wall
3: between you and what you're going to see. That's exactly right. So
0: what kind of tech hardware do you travel with?
3: When I'm on the road, of course, I'm running a tour company. I'm writing a book. I'm making calls. So I'm traveling with my MacBook Pro and a smartphone in my pocket. And that's it.
0: Now, the smartphone is kind of a The Leatherman of the modern traveler. It's got Mm. a lot of tools in there.
3: You're absolutely right. And, you know, that little smartphone has more computing power than the most powerful computer that the CIA had, you know, 30 years ago. It's incredible. You can make airline reservations on the fly, accommodation reservations on the fly. You can research, listen to Rick Steves' podcasts, all sorts of different things. So
0: when you're traveling, you've got to connect with your parents. You've got to connect with your friends. You've got to confirm and change and make reservations. Do you buy a phone over there? Do you unlock your phone? Do you get an international plan? Or do you buy a SIM card so you can function like a local?
3: A SIM card allows you to travel around on the fly. If you get a, I guess it's called a dumb phone, you know, a dumb local phone, that's great for local texts, local calls, but it's not going to help you check emails or anything like that. The tool I use is an American smartphone that I've unlocked, which allows me to plug in other SIM cards so that I can make calls on the fly and do research while I'm on the road. So
0: you're over there committed for months at a time. Keep track of your SIM cards, plug them in, plug them out as you go.
3: It's funny. Every time I touch down in a new city, I bust out my big wallet and my little packet of SIM cards. And the person next to me must think I'm James Bond or something. I don't know.
0: Because
3: <laughs> I'm sorting through my Czech phone or my SIM card or my Dutch SIM card, Spanish, Italian, you name it, Polish. But yeah, it's. Uh, but an
0: iPhone, for instance, a lot of people don't realize it, but you can unlock that thing and you can pull out the
3: card that came with it and stick in a Norwegian card or mm-hmm. or a Polish card or a Greek card. Mm-hmm. And it really just depends on I think whether or not you finished out your contract. You mentioned that you know if you're traveling around for a long period of time, you can get a local SIM card. But really, if you're in a town for three or four days, it might make sense to get a local SIM card. You spend 10 euros on the card. It comes with five or 10 euros of credit, and you can hit the ground running as soon as you. And touch then you down. top it up as you go. As as you, you need to. Mm-hmm.
0: And if you leave the country, you can still use it, but it rips through the remaining balance. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it really goes away quick. Bad. <laughs> you got five bucks left <laughs> on your SIM yeah, card. Yeah. Call up and say hi in a hurry. And just to address your last question there, I found that international plans offered by American Carriers never quite seem to be a very good deal in relation to how cheap it is to call and get data while you're over in Europe. With so a local if you want company.
0: data, you probably want to get a SIM card in Europe. In, in my experience, way. yes. For me, I just want to do a few uh, texts and make calls. I've got my international plan that seems to work well for me, but I kind of stay away from consuming a lot of data.
3: And you can go into your settings on your smartphone. Be sure to turn off the ones that eat up a lot of data as you go. CNN, Facebook, YouTube, apps like that really crank out the media. And so it's important to turn those off.
0: Okay, when this interview is done, I want to sit down with him. Go do that. <laughs> that. Sounds good. <laughs> now, a big deal when you're traveling is getting online. And these days, most hotels come with Wi-Fi. When you're traveling as a student in a backpack around Europe, what are the tricks to get cheap or free connectivity on the Internet?
3: The funny thing about this is most hotels will actually charge you 5 or 10 euros a day these days to use Wi-Fi at the hotel. Hostels offer it for free. Coffee shops offer it for free. So you don't really need to worry about finding Wi-Fi and connecting just about anywhere in Western Europe these days.
0: Is there any riskiness by just taking free Wi-Fi where you can get it? Have you ever heard of anybody that's had their phone violated?
3: I've heard all sorts of stories with um, fake Wi-Fi networks. So you do have to be careful about that. I'd be very careful about entering in your credit card information unless you're on a secured Wi-Fi network. That's important to keep in mind.
0: You see a lot of young people sitting on the curb outside of Starbucks or outside of different cafes. They must be uh, poaching free Wi-Fi.
3: Happens all over the place, and I'm guilty too. It's travel with Rick
0: Steves, and my son Andy has written his first guidebook. It's called Andy Steves Europe, City Hopping on a Budget. It draws on his past 10 years of living and working in Europe. Andy operates his own tour company where he takes budget-conscious foreign-study students on three-day weekends to the greatest fun cities of Europe. Andy, let's talk apps for a minute. Your smartphone is so much more than a camera. Uh,
3: Very quickly, what are your favorite
0: apps? What, What apps do you find most useful in Europe?
3: Sure. Let me run through a few of my favorite. XE, that's just the letter XE, that it keeps track of currency conversion rates. So when you're holding a 2,000-bill note or a 20,000 or a 200,000, you can understand if that's enough for a beer or a car. You know, it's very different things than when you're in Budapest compared to Paris, obviously. Particularly valuable when you're not in euro country. Exactly. Because
0: when you're in euro country, it's essentially a dollar per it's euro. Easy to keep track. But if you go to some countries, there's a thousand per dollar, and you've got to keep track of those zeros. What's exactly. another one? Exactly,
3: exactly. Google Translate is an excellent resource that you can even you just hold the button you speak into it and it translates on the screen in real time I found that to be very useful uh, in recent visits. To, so if I had
0: that places. app I could set it into French and I could show it and it says on your book your city hopping on a budget and it would read on my iPhone it would say city hopping in a budget in French
3: that's another app called WordLens. Word what Lens, what okay. I'm talking about is you can actually speak into the microphone and the other language shows up on the screen as okay. you talk. Both ways, of course. You actually course. use that? I used it in Colombia. I'm a little rusty on my uh, on my Spanish. What about Uber? Uber's excellent. Where it's, does it work in Europe? Is it working in most cities in Europe? Most York? cities. There's certain cities where local communities have refused Uber access. But I've been ripped off in taxis all over Europe. Not bad, but just overpaid by 10 it or just 20%. It's kind of stressful. It's well, not an enjoyable experience. One time you? I was in Dublin leaving you and mom. And mom said, now, how much money do you have in your pocket to get lunch at the airport? And I said, 30 euros within earshot of the taxi driver. We're pulling up to the airport 30 minutes later. It's reading at about 15, 16 euros. He starts hitting some buttons. It goes away. And then 30 euros shows up on the bill.
0: That's <laughs> terrible. Now, with Uber, you I, never I, I have that problem. I think of a few <laughs> other words.
3: But no, Uber uh, is excellent because it's, uh, yeah, the company has your card. The driver drives you to where right. you need to go. And the money comes out automatically. So basically, if you like Uber, if you know how to use it here in the United
0: States, it works the same in Europe, assuming it's covered in mm-hmm. that city.
3: And I recommend parallel apps that basically do the same thing, but who are, which are specific for Prague or Budapest or Krakow or you name it. Okay. So there's, there's parallel apps out so there. So local Ubers. Mm-hmm, exactly. Do
0: you have any tricks to, a lot of people are, are just leaving their cameras at home now and, and using their smartphone as a camera. I know iPhone puts a lot of energy into putting a very quality lens in there and so on. Mm-hmm. What are your tricks to making your smartphone shoot as good of as possible
3: Mm -hmm. there's tons of tips out there so you can google it but here are some of my favorite be sure to tap on the part of the screen of the image that you want to expose on that if you tap on a bright spot or a dark spot that's what the camera will focus on so that's
0: exposure not focus or both
3: kind of both okay so just tap where you want to be looking at exactly another one is if you're having a hard time holding your camera still you can plug in your headphones and hit the up volume button and it'll take the picture same with the up volume button on your phone as well. That can snap a picture.
0: I've noticed you've been making a lot of uh, little video clips that you actually edit in your camera. Mm-hmm. That's what, app, true. what app do you use on that?
3: The funny thing is, I don't know how to make uh, movie edits on my computer. I'm just self-taught on my phone. And I use iMovie, one of the default iPhone apps that, uh, that come on your phone.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with my son, Andy Steves. He spent the last decade living in Europe, uh, getting smart with uh, uh, the apps and tech and... Flashpacking, I guess. I hear this word, Andy, flashpacking for millennial travelers. What exactly does that mean?
3: That's kind of a new and kind of tacky term to just refer to how we're taking backpacking and layering all the benefits that technology has to offer on top of it. Flashpacking means, you know, zipping around on budget airlines, making hostel reservations on the fly from a smartphone. Being able to stay in touch and Snapchat your friends back in the States without blinking an eye. You know, all these things just are layered upon the classic backpacking experience, and that's what we do today.
0: Let's talk about crowdsourcing. What are the pitfalls and and the benefits and and the, the disadvantages
3: of all these crowdsourcing sites? Sure. Let's first define crowdsourcing, right? So these are websites where anybody can get on and say anything they want about just about anything on the subject. TripAdvisor and Yelp are some of the most popular, famous ones. Those are an excellent place to start to just kind of gather ideas But remember, anybody can say anything they want about these venues that they've been to, whether or not they have authority on the subject. They could come into a place in Paris and say that's the best restaurant or the worst restaurant in Paris without having gone to a second one.
0: So do you just discard all that crowdsourcing advice for eating and sleeping abroad or do you have a way of looking through that and and reading through the lines and finding out what really is good and, and what are the bogus comments?
3: I like to look for what I call collective intelligence. So I look kind of for the best blend of, you know, quantity of reviews and quality of so reviews. So if there's five
0: reviews and they're all five stars, suspect. If suspect a if, little bit, yeah. If, yeah, if there's yeah. 100 reviews and most of them are four or four plus.
3: Mm-hmm. That's a better start, I would say. I would put my money on the on the one with more reviews rather than the perfect set of reviews.
0: I've heard a lot of people raving about the value of blogs so they know just what's going on in Amsterdam or Copenhagen or, or Singapore. Do you rely on blogs, and and what's your advice for using blogs as a source of travel information?
3: I personally use blogs primarily when I'm doing my initial research of a place that I've never been to. So when I went to Mm -hmm. Southeast Asia with Jackie, my sister, last summer, I was just doing Google searches and collecting information from the crowdsourcing websites, from the blogs, from guidebooks that are out there, and just casting my net as wide as possible so I know what's out there. From there, then I can drill down to what sounds best and most interesting to me.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Andy Steves, uh, my son. After a decade of living and working in Europe, he's written his first book designed for millennials that people of any age can enjoy and and learn from. It's called Andy Steves Europe, City Hopping on a Budget. Andy, one thing I'm I'm just so thankful for is that the fundamental magic of travel, the value of travel for young people and young-at-heart people, is the same today as it was when I was a kid. And what's really exciting today is that there's technological tools and innovations and new ways that we can travel that just flat out make it more efficient safer more affordable and I think
3: more experiential
0: and Andy with with your information it's, it's a big help so thanks so much for joining us and best wishes with your new book City Hopping on a Budget
3: Thanks Dad for having me it's great to be here with you Andy Steves
0: operates Weekend Student Adventures in Europe and he's written Andy Steves Europe as a guide to his favorite cities that young adult travelers can enjoy on a budget You'll find guest web links with each week's show. That's at ricksteves.com radio. Just like his old man, Andy started traveling to Europe with his family at a young age. We'll get some motherly advice next for taking your own kids along on an overseas adventure. That's in just a bit. But first, historian Michael Wood shares what he discovered about the last 4,000 years in China and the things he learned while filming his latest documentary series there. It's travel with Rick Steves the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and 70s tried to erase much of China's past. But 4,000 years of dynasties and discoveries are hard to forget. Today, more than a billion Chinese citizens are enjoying a renewed pride in their contributions to civilization as China approaches the status of a superpower in the 21st century. Historian Michael Wood spent more than two years in China researching and filming an epic documentary series on its history... The six-hour series is called The Story of China, and it's just been released to American audiences on PBS. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share what the experience showed him. Michael, thanks for joining us.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: Hi. You know, I've been following your shows, Michael, for literally decades. And now, after so much work and energy, you've got this... Amazing series. Can you just describe uh, in a brief way what the series is all about?
1: Yeah, the, I mean, the trouble is you could use a 100 films on the story of China because mm-hmm. there's so much to tell. And you've just got six hours. So you have to choose certain big themes and certain big periods, you know. Mm-hmm. And you try to give the general public a kind of arc of narrative, if you like, a storyline going from the, the deep past to the present day.
0: First of all, how did the Chinese government accept you and how was the access and and the permissions and the support that way?
1: They were pretty cool about it actually. I mean, you know, they check what you want to do and they they're supposed to send somebody with you actually every time mm-hmm. you go shooting. But after about two or three trips, the guy in the department said, oh, I trust you guys, you know, you just go off and do it. He obviously didn't want to trek around the kind of wilds of the Chinese countryside, staying in kind of little bed and breakfasts while we were talking about kind of ancient (laughs) stuff, you know. But the only time they wanted to know what I was going to say was when I asked permission to film in Tiananmen Square. Oh, okay. And because of the big demonstration that took place in 1989, you know, when the... The government brought in troops, and Mm -hmm. a lot of people, probably about 700 people, were killed, and many people were put in prison because of this huge demo. They're touchy about Tiananmen Square. They're really touchy about it, you know.
0: Right. My fear about the whole Mao thing and the Cultural Revolution was it would cut the next generation off from their heritage. But clearly that didn't happen, did it?
1: Yes, yeah, it's and it's an amazing thing, you know. Really, I mean, I travelled quite a lot in China in the nineteen eighties, starting in the early eighties. You know, Mao died in nineteen seventy six, mm-hmm. and I remember in the early eighties, you'd go to these kind of grim industrial cities, and people, everybody would be wearing what they used to call Mao suits. You know, where they had what they wore mm-hmm. these kind of work suits that right. had a, were grey or blue or green, with flat hats, and everybody looked as if they were traumatized, really, even though they were still great and sociable. You know, the Chinese people, contrary to a lot of popular views, are really sociable and fantastic, fun to be with. But they've gone through a lot. But going back there now, it's just mind-boggling. You know, mm. I mean, I, I texted my younger daughter when I first arrived in Shanghai after all those years away, you know, and I, was, I said, you're not going to believe this, but I'm sitting in a Starbucks with a caramel latte <laughs> and a kind of whatever, you know, you, you can't believe it. This is Travel with Rick
0: Steves. We're talking with Michael Wood about his new series that you'll see on PBS called The Story of China. It's six episodes, six hours. And you mentioned, Michael, that the challenge of telling this complex story limited to six hours, you really did a nice job of getting into fundamentals. And there's this one fundamental thing that I was trying to get my brain around. In the West, our history is kind of a clash of various civilizations. But in China... It's one big civilization with cycles of order and disorder. Did I get that or, or
1: you got that absolutely right. That's exactly it. You know, we when we look at history, you know we learn it in our school books and you learn about all these civilizations, don't you? Ancient Greece and ancient Rome and the Middle yeah. Ages and all this stuff. And and they're different civilizations. But in China it's one civilization which you know, with its rising and its falling and and that's one of the most important things to understand about China. It's crucial, actually, you know, mm-hmm. that they united in the third century B.C. And whatever troubles it's gone through, with, you know, even the last 150 years with civil war and invasion and terrible things have gone on. The Chinese people have never lost that sense that they belong to a single civilization, you know, and they, which they call a Han civilization, H-A-N, you know, which is the old dynasty who ruled at the time of the Romans. And they talk about their language and their culture being Han speech and Han culture, you know. So even though there are many different regional ethnicities in China, you know, tribal cultures Mm -hmm. and all that, people talk about belonging to this single civilization. Okay, and then you have a a
0: relay of dynasties within that single civilization?
1: Yeah, all of which rise and fall. And often they end in incredible disasters and tragedies, you Mm. know. Every episode in this series has just got unbelievable drama in it. You, you literally can't believe some of the stories. Yeah, yes. I mean, you talked about a, a rebellion in
0: the 18th century that apparently was the most bloody and costly war in, in the history of mankind. What, 20 million? In dead?
1: the 19th century, yeah. 20 million people died in this rebellion million. in the 1850s. So you'd have to add the Napoleonic Wars and the, the American Civil War hmm. and, and all the European wars together. It still wouldn't be as many people killed. You know,
0: do you think part of the reason the Chinese are so willing to not have democracy in our sense is that they want to be pragmatic about stability because they know the cost of instability?
1: You've hit the nail on the head again. I think all the way through Chinese history, you can see that they they prefer to have order a Mm well-ordered state. They want that order to be just and to be fair. And they want the rulers to have virtue. You know, they have this big idea that that's what it should be. Mm -hmm. And they will rebel against the rulers if the rulers go too far the other way. But that preference for order, there's an old Chinese saying, you know, that better a a year of tyranny than a day of anarchy. You know, they, they have a terror of disorder. You know, you look at their traditions and they they have a tradition of law going back long before the West. Mm. But the the way they look at it now, I think, is that, uh, you know, there are things that the people are unhappy about. But the government has delivered in the last 30 years with the incredible improvement of people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, the biggest lifting out of poverty in history, really. The cities, life in the cities is you know, like ahead of what it is here almost, yeah. you know. There are issues about that. And the people are unhappy about many things, including the environment and the food chain, to be honest. You know, these are big things for the Chinese people. But the idea that they could have a workable democracy in our sense,
0: mm-hmm.
1: most people who really know China think that that's just a pipe dream. Michael Woods, the producer, writer
0: and host of The Story of China. and He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His six-part special on the history of China has been airing on PBS stations around the U.S., and it's available as a DVD set or on demand at pbs.org. One thing exciting about China, Michael, from a Western point of view and an American point of view or from your British point of view, is it rocks our ethnocentrism. Now, I'm not sure how ethnocentric the English are compared to the Americans, but we have a struggle with this. We think the world's a pyramid with us on top and everybody else trying to figure it out in a lot of cases. And when you go to China, you know, it's just amazing when you think of all these concepts that we thought we developed in the 1500s or the 1800s or whatever, and it was there centuries before in China. Talk a little bit about how China rocked some Western visitors' ethnocentrism.
1: Yeah, it's a big shock, you know. I mean, we talk about, you know, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, you know, <laughs> and the Enlightenment. And, of course, a lot of the things that we, we think of as being You know, our inventions actually were there long before that in China, you know, and if you were going to say there was a renaissance in China, it would like be uh, around the year 1000, you know, long before our renaissance (laughs) and the scientific developments there are just staggering, you know, with kind of, you know, cast iron and gunpowder and... All kinds of technological inventions. There's a fantastic scene in the film where we go to this this little place on the coast where this Chinese scientist came from in the you know in the 11th century, and uh, he went to some foreign country and he realised that they, their calendar was better than the Chinese, so he came back and he devised a, a mechanical clock in order to better calculate. The time. Oh, that was a huge mechanism. You called
0: him their their Leonardo, like five centuries before ours.
1: Yeah, it's 45 (laughs) feet high. You know, you kind of go up these ladders and it's like going onto the the deck of a ship and there's a wheel at the top, you know, and these fantastic, you know, circular mechanisms. And this was when
0: Europe was just still rutting in the mud in a lot of ways. This
1: is exactly the time of the Norman conquest (laughs) when the Normans were burning
0: England down, you know. From that same century, one of my favorite parts of one of the shows that you did is there's a book published in 1085. And apparently it's still in print 950 years later. (laughs) And it's how to help old people live longer, healthier, and happier. (laughs) What a concept. A thousand years ago, a a self-help book for
1: seniors. It's just great. I mean, the level of their society then, uh, probably they reached a level in many areas that hadn't been reached by other societies before them. You know, the ancient Greeks or you name it. But that's just great, isn't it? There are all these great books that they had at that time on optics and, you know, mineralogy and everything. And here's this book saying how to have a happy, healthy retirement. <laughs> and it's still in print, you know. still and, and in print so, 900 years later. It's so brilliant because it, it says these things that anybody who's got aged parents knows that – You know, it's terribly upsetting when you're you're an older person and you're retired and maybe you're getting a bit slow, when you're always harassed by your kids or by young people who, you know, don't give the space to think or the time to think. And it recommends you to, you know, it says, you know, These old people, when they were young, they had all these enthusiasms and their loves of, you know, whether they had hobbies, whether they like dancing, whether they like reading. Make sure that not only do they keep physically healthy and eat well, but they're still in contact with the things they really loved in life. Mm. It's just absolutely brilliant. (laughs) And it's the measure of a civilized society, you see. But the Chinese have always been very sensitive about the respect for the old, you know. And the funny thing is, you know, we were filming that sequence and I went back to the hotel. And I switched on the main Chinese TV channel and they've got a series of adverts on at the moment because they're scared about the gap between the generations now. Mm. And they're scared that with so much materialism, you know, with the market going AWOL, you know, that young kids are not looking after the old in the way that you were supposed to in traditional Chinese society. So they have these beautifully made tv ads which are like mini stories you know made by really great filmmakers where you have a family that's almost kind of broken up by the surliness of the young teenage kid who treats the older people horribly you know and then they kind of make it up together and then the advert it's like two minute advert and the advert concludes you know never forget what you owe to the the old so it's a big theme in chinese culture Michael Woods joining us from London on
0: Travel with Rick Steves as we learn about his latest TV series called The Story of China. It's a six-part special that delves into the highlights of Chinese history and takes us on a sweep through 4,000 years of history. It's been showing on PBS stations around the country. Michael's been presenting history on TV for more than 30 years now. You might have seen his shows on English history and his epic series The Story of India, which aired a few years ago on PBS. He also teaches history at the University of Manchester, and he's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. We have links to Michael's work and the story of China with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Michael, one thing you take away from your show is the warmth and the friendliness of the people and the vastness of that society. A billion people is just hard to fathom. You took us into a soccer stadium and to think that there's (laughs) these vast soccer stadiums and huge leagues and superstars, I would imagine, and they don't even register outside of China.
1: No, I mean, actually, Chinese soccer needs... I speak as an English football fan here, but Chinese soccer needs to improve a bit, you know, and they're actually Mm. paying a lot of money to have Western stars come, you know. But you're right. it's You're conscious of the vast numbers of people all the time. This is
0: terribly simplistic, but help me with this. Yeah, there's all sorts of affluence and new wealth but you've got 800 million serfs, and then you've got a, 100 million or so people in this new thriving middle class. So 100 million people is a huge power, but there's still a lot of people who are agrarian and basically 21st century serfs. Or is that changing now?
1: Well, it's changing now. I mean, one of the big things that the communist revolution tried to do was so they, you know, the whole thing, all these revolutions through the the 19th into the 20th century stemmed from the rural poverty. You know, that was why it all happened. I mean, a lot of people now say about 300 million, maybe in the middle class out of 1.2 or 3, is it now a Mm -hmm. billion? Uh, But to be quite honest, traveling all over China for the last three years You don't really see poverty. It's not like India, you know. I mean, I Mm -hmm. love India, but you do see poverty in many, many places. And the social services in China are pretty good. I mean, there are still villages in the wild hinterland where you just wonder, Mm -hmm. did they ever know that a revolution took place (laughs) in 1949? You know, But it's a, a massive, massive change in people's lives. I'll tell you one really amazing thing, of course, is they love American culture. You know, it was a... At that moment when Deng Xiaoping came to Texas, do you remember the the incredible well, moment he when he came to Texas? He showed him with his cowboy hat on, and the, uh, whoever it was on the ABC News said, "You know, when Deng not only went west, he went western, <laughs> kind right. of wearing a cowboy hat and going to a rodeo." But all the people you talked to say it was not only a really big thing in America where they saw that actually these people could be kind of uh, you know reasonable, and we can deal with them and we can talk to them we can talk to each other but in China it was a big thing as well because they'd been taught in the worst of the Maoist era that the Americans were the enemy you know mm-hmm. and suddenly you were allowed to admire the culture you know and Deng Xiaoping when he you know after Mao said look everywhere I go where the communist system has been applied I see poverty and and desolation and everywhere where the American system goes I see prosperity for the people and the people being brought on. And as he said, there are many ways to skin a cat, was the way he put it. Wow. And uh, so the admiration for American society and culture is very great. you know. And one of the things that really amazed me, because you know when you travel on making films like this, you spend a lot of time in hotels. You sit there in breakfast and they've got the Chinese programs on. You sit there in the evening, they've got the Chinese programs on. And you look at the sitcoms that they have on TV and the sitcoms that the Chinese really love, you know, and you're sitting there in some bar and everybody's laughing. And you, what you notice is that in these sitcoms, people talk and act and move their bodies, their body language and their way of expressing themselves isn't what you saw 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Mm. They're like, it's like Americans are. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So that kind of affable openness, which is so characteristic of America, is seeping into the way the Chinese... Wow. Um, represent themselves it seems to me when you produced this series it goes
0: back before all of the changes that have taken place in the last year politically in europe and the united states it must be interesting for you who have spent so much time in china to see how the united states is going more inward and pulling out of treaties and trade agreements and china is becoming dramatically more expansive Uh, what's china's uh, agenda and vision and how does that surprise you from having been in china
1: The agenda of the Chinese government is really kind of threefold, you know. Of course, their main thing is to maintain the party, the Communist Party, although it's not communist, but it's the one-party state, as the rulers of China. In order to do that, they have to maintain growth and standard of living, you know, this really, really crucial thing. But it also rests on their pride in the and the the civilization, in the, as you mentioned earlier, Chairman Mao actually tried to wreck the traditional civilization, whereas the new government is encouraging people to believe in the greatness of Chinese culture. So when they now look out on the world, and they're smart people, you know, the government in China now are all technocrats and, you know, very educated and literate and um, smart, and so they're anxious to place themselves in the world as a... A force for good. They're they're trying to enhance their own interests. But for instance, siding with Europe over the climate change treaty is one of the things that the, the Chinese see their role in the world as a world leader. You know, so it's very interesting to see that. Of course, you know, I don't know whether President Trump has watched our films, but the, you know, initially his rhetoric when he first came in was very anti-Chinese. Now he's mm-hmm. kind of really softened that. You know, and he's, he has, he's yeah, and he realizes that actually you know, President Xi Jinping and China are going to be made not only major players, but could be really helpful. And more valuable than ever to get to know China, to travel there, to learn about it, to respect more it. More valuable than
0: ever. Michael Wood, thanks so much. It's been great talking to you and, and being inspired about traveling to China and learning about it.
1: Thanks a lot. It's great fun. I do recommend people to go.
0: Some of our fondest family memories come from the vacations we've taken together. Up next, two moms, one American and one from Slovenia, take your calls at 877-333-7425. They'll share the hard-won do's and don'ts for taking young kids with you to Europe. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We took our kids to Europe every year for their first 20 years. They didn't always want to go and sure cut into our adult activities, and it cost quite a bit of money, But in retrospect, it was well worth the sacrifice, the money, and it actually gave us lifelong memories that we cherish to this day. And I consider taking your kids on the road to be good parenting. There are lots of challenges and questions about taking kids into foreign countries, and we're joined today by two well-traveled moms for some practical advice. We'll talk about how to travel well with your kids in that childhood sweet spot, somewhere between the ages of 5 and 10 5, 11, something like that. We're joined by European tour guide Tina Hiti from Slovenia, and Ashley Steele, who's the co-author of a book called 100 Tips for Traveling with Kids in Europe. Ashley and Tina, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you, Rick. Thank you. So
0: you've been at this for a little while. Ashley, how old are your kids now? They are now 14 and 17. So you've had a little experience traveling with kids abroad and Tina, how old are your kids?
4: 9 and 7 now.
0: 9 and 7. So if you think back on that beautiful time, I think, you know, five, you know, little tiny kids, that's a different story. I mean, I always joke when when they have little toddlers and people say where should we take our kids? I say to grandma and grandpa's on the way to the airport <laughs> so you can have, you know, a break from the kids when they're little mm-hmm. tiny toddlers. But after 5 or 6, I think it becomes a little more realistic. Tina, they're right in that mm-hmm. age right now. What is one of the, the joys of travel you can remember?
4: I think one of the biggest joys is that you see worlds through their eyes, and it's so much more colorful, and it's just happier. And you know, certain things that they see, it's just different. Because I've been traveling through Europe a lot, being a guide, and you know, I know a lot of the places where we went. We always chose a destination where we have already been. So it didn't bring any nervousness that we're not seeing everything as adults. As adults, that's So we were idea. totally yeah. relaxed with whatever they wanted to do, and that's what we did afterwards. So you but, went
0: to a place where you didn't have a big agenda as adults of yes, things to yes. accomplish. And yeah. if you think back, what do your children talk about? What are some of the memories you realized? And you didn't know at the time, but you get home, and, oh, that had a real impact on Oh,
4: you. yeah, we still talk about the Eiffel Tower. It's still one of their favorite things. We We have a little joke aside, and we say, oh, it's the big... Metal piece standing out there. What is that? (laughs) And they will always remember how we were warming up our butts up on Mount Etna in Sicily. And they still talk about how cool that was. It was so cold.
0: Yeah. I warmed up my butt on the top of Mount (laughs) Etna. And even as an adult child, that was something I'll never forget.
4: It's a fun memory.
0: Ashley, when you think back on when your kids were in this uh, grade school age, what are some of the things that they recall vividly and and still talk about to this day that you're glad as a parent you you helped them experience?
2: I think that having all those cohesive family memories is one of the best parts of all our travels. So we have this shared stories of they really love these sausages on the street in Vienna where you poked a hole in a loaf of French bread and put the sausage in the bread. And it's something so small, and it's not really that exciting now, but as a kid, it was fantastic. You you put the sausage in the bread. I know what you mean.
0: (laughs) And and, um, even little candies. My kids were, Mm -hmm. they have these... um, Chocolate eggs in Europe with a can- mm-hmm. with a toy kinder inside. Kinder oh yeah. Eggs. yeah! Oh my goodness! Tell me s- a Kinder Egg story.
2: Yeah. Well, that they, they, my kids love Kinder Eggs, and apparently you're not supposed to have them in the U S. because they're a toy encased in food or something. Oh, dangerous! So every uh. time, when even just a trip to Canada, they are the first thing on their mind is Kinder Eggs. We can be risky. We yeah, can have toys crazy, in our food. just crazy. Yeah, Tina, Kinder Eggs with your kids.
4: Well. We're Europeans, so we get them all the time. But <laughs> let's say the biggest excitement in food was when we were in Tuscany. It was their first gelato that they oh ever ate gosh. when they were little. And I still vividly remember uh, the little one was still a toddler. He was in a stroller, and he was doing... Mm, 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 so good. Oh, so he even appreciated a good yes. gelato. <laughs> yes.
0: You know, when you're a parent planning a family vacation, you have a lot of decisions, really fundamental decisions, about what itinerary are you going to do. Ashley, what are some tips? Uh, You've written 100 tips for traveling with kids in Europe. What itineraries make sense for a family?
2: I think that a balance between what I call the icons, the things everybody's heard of, and your kids, you know, they want to see a few of those because those are what they can tell their friends about. They can put Mm -hmm. them on social media. They get very excited. But you also want some time to see really Europe, to be in Europe. I mean, there are no, very few Parisians at the Eiffel Tower. So you really want some time, perhaps in a small town, a little time to get lost, to do Nothing.
0: Yeah. yeah, you know, I, I found that one of the best family tips we took was split between Venice and the Cinque Terre. Perfect. So you got Venice, which is all the sightseeing, and the great churches, and unforgettable city, great for kids if they can swim. And then <laughs> on the, it's a direct train line over to the Cinque Terre, the Italian Riviera, free time on the beach and hiking through the vineyards. It was wonderful. Another great itinerary we had was pick up the family at the airport in Vienna, do all the stuff in the Alps, and finish the trip with your rental car in Zurich in Switzerland. And it's just nonstop fun in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Tina, what's the favorite itinerary you had for your family?
4: Well, probably when we went and traveled through France for about 16 days. Mm-hmm. And we did the whole loop. We wanted to visit a friend... And we kind of added a few things into that. So we added a few mountain hikes, we added a few big cities, a couple of castles, and then just a relaxed, chill time to be with friends.
0: Like Ashley says, a balance. Yes, a balance uh, I think between good. everything. I think adults can yeah. just jam through a lot yeah. of museums and great cities, but to have a balance is a good idea, Ashley.
2: We took a tour following Salvador Dali. Uh, it was mm-hmm. unplanned, and we ended up in Figueres, where his mausoleum is, and it's a crazy place. I mean, wow. kids might be intimidated by some kinds of art museum, but... You know, building with Salvador eggs Dali on top Museum. and that cars be, with plants yeah. growing out of it. I mean, it really exciting. And then we ended up in Kedakes, where he, you can visit his house and also sit mm. on the beach and, and paint rocks.
0: And that's a way to get the kids engaged in the art, and it's Salvador Dali. You know, it's, it's wild. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking taking your child to Europe. We're talking with Tina Hiti and Ashley Steele, who writes a book called 100 Tips for Traveling with Kids in Europe. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And James is calling in from Blackstone, Massachusetts. James, do you have some experience you've learned from traveling with kids in Europe?
2: Well, uh, hi, Rick. Uh, This is actually going to be our first time traveling with our children and grandchildren. And uh, obviously, when it's just adults, it's a little
4: bit easier uh, as far as, you know, the pace and things like that. My wife and I have traveled to Europe uh, on a few occasions. But this will be the first time with our older
2: children and their 5- and 10-year-olds. So we were not quite sure as far as the pacing. We figured we were going to have to kind of cut it back. But we also wanted to keep it interesting for them as well. Mm-hmm. We're going to be spending four nights in Rome and four nights in Athens.
0: Whoa, those are pretty demanding cities, so you're going to have to be on the ball as parents and grandparents. Ashley, what's some advice if you've got a 5-year-old and 10-year-old and you, you want to keep them engaged and, and safe and not exhausted in Rome and Athens?
2: There are so many fun places in Rome. I mean, there's fountains and then there's the the ruins where they race the Roman chariots. I think most kids are mm-hmm. pretty excited about those kinds of looking at the Colosseum and hearing stories about what really happened there.
0: And you write in your book the importance of preparing before the trip so the kids know what they're going to see. That would be critical for both Rome, ancient Rome, and Athens.
2: Yes, and I think for a 5- and 10-year-old preparing for ancient Rome, learning about you know, what the ancient Romans did and mm-hmm. mythology is not too complicated. I think kids love that kind of story. R- Remember,
0: James, it's hot and it's crowded in both of those destinations, so it's critical that you get reservations in advance when you can, get an early start and stay out late and try to avoid all the cruise groups and so on that pack those two cities during the middle of the day. Does that make sense? Yes, it does very much. Yeah. For the kids to know a little bit about, you know, the Acropolis before they climb up to that hill is going to make a huge difference. It is worth considering if you've got a family hiring a private guide who can Mm -hmm. tailor the experience to the kids' interests. And I know the guides who are friends of mine Mm -hmm. in Europe love to take families around because you can organize your tour to the interests of the kids and it actually becomes more fun for the parents too. Tina, any thoughts on that?
4: Yes, I agree with that completely. With the kids, it's good that you plan well. The one thing I think as parents we all need to know is that sometimes we plan too big of an agenda Mm -hmm. and we get a little stressed when we don't Mm. check all the boxes. And I think when you're traveling with kids, you have to know that half of those boxes will be unchecked because you just can't do it all. And I think what's important is really giving the kids the highlights assuring that they will see whatever they've seen on television, preparing them for the big sites, giving them books beforehand, actively make them think about what they are seeing. For example, what I always do when I travel with kids, we do travel journal, but it's not just a journal. We call it ragdish journal, and we do paint inside. We take stones, we put a little mud on the papers, we do a scavenger hunt. So when you see that there's interest spam Mm. is going lower... You can pull that journal out and sit in a nice park and just do something fun with it, and it's all of you. All the family members are doing something fun with it. I love that because it's
0: tactile. It's yes. got, I, I used to send postcards home, and I would put a little bit of sauerkraut under the postage yes. stamp. Yes, yes, so good, <laughs> so good. I, I would send some sauerkraut home and talk about the sauerkraut and put a chocolate stain yes. on it Yes, so you on. can
4: make a stain lock if you want of all the foods you've eaten, and the kids love it because it's something... You know, parents were so many times so serious at home. Yeah. And when we go traveling, we can be a little goofy and kids like that. Ashley,
0: and any thoughts about journaling for small oh, kids?
4: Oh, I love journaling with small kids. Mm-hmm. And we bring, just in a big
2: Ziploc bag, a mm-hmm. tape and some scissors mm-hmm. so we can Very stop important. anywhere and just yeah. cut out the picture from the brochure, yeah. tape it yes. right in.
0: Glue stick, We haven't put kind of stains
2: thing. of food yet, but I think we're going to even yeah. 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 next trip, even <laughs> okay. if I don't have kids. Take that home sounds great. Take some
0: sauerkraut. <laughs> All right, James, there's some ideas for you.
2: Thank you so very
0: much. Have a great time, and what a wonderful uh, kind of uh, grandparenting and parenting to take the kids to Rome and Athens when they're five and nine years old. Ashley Steele co-wrote Family on the Loose with her husband, Bill Richards, to share the tricks and strategies they developed while traveling the world with their two young daughters. Their latest book focuses on Europe, and it's called 100 Tips for Traveling with Kids in Europe. Their website is familyontheloose.com. Tina Hiti is raising her family in the scenic Lake Bled region of Slovenia. She works as a tour guide and often leads family groups around Europe. Her website is pg-slovenia.com. She'll be back with us on Travel with Rick Steves in a few weeks to help us better explore her home country. Scott's calling from Reno. Scott, thanks for your call.
4: Hi, thanks for taking my call, Rick. Yeah. My wife and I are going to be taking our 5-year-old and
0: 8-year-old to Nice, Soon. I'm actually going to be racing a triathlon, and this will be my, our kids' uh, first trip to Europe. I was wondering what kind of strategies you might recommend to help our kids encounter and deal with both jet lag and, I think, the culture shock. Uh, we're going to be mm. arriving in Nice. It's really our first stop after connecting in London. So wondering for a 5-year-old and 8-year-old what might be some good strategies. So, Ashley, every time you take your kids to Europe, they're dealing with 8 or 9 hours, 10 hours of culture Absolutely. shock. Absolutely. How does a child, let's see, how old are your kids, Scott? Uh, Five-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son. Okay, so it's tough for kids to deal with jet lag.
2: I think that the kids are going to start to fall asleep and wake up at the right time slowly, and the most important thing is for the parents to stick with the kids. When the parents try to get rid of jet lag on their own, they end up exhausted Mm. because the kids are going to sleep when the kids are going to sleep. So helping them go to bed at the right time, waking them up a little early in the morning, that's great, but you need to also then go to bed. So do you
0: try to keep people awake on the first day until early bedtime? Yes, always. I think I think that's critical. I remember once uh, in Italy uh, noticing, uh, my wife and I were having a particularly sane and peaceful dinner, and we looked over, and, and my son was literally sleeping face down in his spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> and it was jet lag. You know, it's just hard for the kids to stay up because they don't know what's going on. But they need to somehow... Adjust, And uh, the sooner you can get to European time, the better. But I like Ashley's point of if the parents overcome it quicker than the kids, you really haven't accomplished much.
2: And there's some fun things in Europe. People tend to stay out later and have a nice late dinner. And maybe at home that's difficult. But if you let jet lag work in your favor, you can you know, wake up really early when the kids wake up early and see dawn or stay out for those nice so you uh, dinners. A, a
0: jump. Tina, any thoughts about uh, culture shock and jet lag for the kids?
4: I would say for the culture shock, I always try to ask the kids So what do you feel that it's different over here? Do you recognize something that people do here differently than we do? And I try to explain why. And I think they then are more attentive or just, you know, their attention span is bigger when you say, this is not like home. And then you explain why it's not like home. So make
0: it part of the conversation. Yeah. And in every town we've talked about with kids so far, Rome, Athens, and now with Scott and Nice, wonderful promenades where mm-hmm. you can be out. Yes. Make a point's got to be out when everybody's walking and strolling. And then it's sort of like a cultural scavenger hunt. And you can walk with the kids and go, oh, what's that over there? You'll find some street mm-hmm. musicians and, yes. and entertainers in the street. That's a lot of fun. You can eat some street food and uh, you know introduce yourself gradually to the culture. Yeah. They have different money. Look at this. And yeah. who's on the money? Oh, it's not, it's not President yeah. Lincoln. Seems and the language
4: lot. as well. You yeah. know, talk, talk them the basics of the language and see how and they roll their it. tongues yeah. and use it. And let's go to the shop and let's buy it and let's be locals. I, I remember when we were in France... We were in this small village, and everybody was walking with a baguette. And our little son was like, "Why, Mom, everybody's walking with a baguette. And I just said, Do you want to walk with a baguette, too? So we just went and bought a baguette. <laughs> and, and what I would do is I'd, I'd, yeah. give,
0: I'd give my son the money to yeah. buy the ba- yes. baguette, and yeah. I'd stand back yes. <laughs> and, and remember, yes. it's an adventure they'll never forget. Yeah. And
2: people are so kind to kids everywhere, oh, so are. that's really fun. I was going to suggest also finding a playground close to where you're staying mm-hmm. so that your kids can have a small... I mean, playgrounds are pretty similar everywhere, and... There are some really f- cool, different kinds of play structures in Europe. So giving them that little break from the cultural immersion into just a regular old playground and running, getting dirty.
0: You wrote an article, fascinating article, about five practical tips for kids in Europe. And your fifth tip was uh, go beyond the monuments, experience the real life. And you mentioned, as a parent, go to the playgrounds because the mm-hmm. playgrounds themselves can be a cultural experience.
2: Well, some of the playgrounds in Europe, I think, have a different sense of safety. So maybe kids are allowed to climb higher. A lot of emphasis on kids getting really dirty. There's a playground in Vienna with just, they put water in to make mud so the kids can play in the mud on purpose. Wonderful um,
0: fountains, and it'll be very hot in the summer. There's yes. fountains, obviously, well, we got them here, but designed for kids to run in, and that's just a hit for every kid. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And of course, they interact with each other language-free, yeah. um, here or there, and that makes them... Yeah, feel at home
0: parents should remember that all over Europe they make beaches in the summer in the <laughs> cities yes. Paris has a huge beach all along the Seine River every big city in Scandinavia has fake beaches with, mm-hmm. with fake palm trees and Mai Tais and kids building Zen castles and it's important for a parent to be a little bit uh, industrious about finding out what is available now what are the current events mm-hmm. for the kids uh, Scott you've got an exciting uh, adventure coming up with your kids it sounds like yeah, we're really looking forward to it. We're going to stay near the Promenade des Anglais. So I Well, think that's, that's perfect. Good. And, you know, you can rent bicycles there, and you can bike all the way out to the airport. There's a bike path that arcs right along that beautiful bay. And, um, you know, renting bikes was oh, something excellent. that we always opt for with our kids, and, and the kids loved it. Have a good time, and uh, good luck with your triathlon. <laughs> that's going to uh, give you a special memory in Nice. Thanks very much. Appreciate it, Rick. Okay, happy travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking taking your child to Europe and we're joined by Tina Heaty who's got a 9-year-old and a 7-year-old and Ashley Steele who's got right now a 14- and a 17-year-old and with all that experience that's 30 years when you put it together (laughs) of kids (laughs) traveling. You've written a book called 100 Tips for Traveling with Kids in Europe. You know, I am so committed to the value of travel and when it comes to parenting and, and, and raising kids that is just as important as ever. Tina and Ashley, let's just finish with a a thought you've had as a parent, or even as a child, the value of having a passport and getting out there, out of your little childish comfort zone. Tina.
4: Yeah, I would say the best experience for me was when we went to Ortigia in Sicily, Mm -hmm. and we just kind of hanged out in front of the main church on the square, and there was this little boys playing football. And the boys just came to us and said, Mom, can we go? And I'm like, yeah, of course you can go. They played football for three hours, and we just enjoyed watching them. We got a bottle of wine, we drank wine outside, watched them play, and I thought, look, these kids, they don't speak the same language. They don't come from the same background, but... Slovenian,
0: and, uh, you know... It, it, it was it's just Sicilians. incredible. It oh, was like, thing.
4: I looked at them, and I'm like, I was so happy.
0: Ah, that's joy. Ashley,
4: I
2: was really proud after one of our first trips to Europe. We'd been to several countries. And when we came back, someone asked my older daughter at the time what she wanted to do when she grew up. And she said, I want to learn every language in the world. And I hadn't heard anything like that from her before. But I realized, you know, having traveled through a bunch of languages, she realized the limitation of only speaking English. And she wanted to be able to speak with everyone.
0: She had an appetite for the world. Yeah.
2: And so that came from our trip. It was pretty exciting.
0: That is beautiful. And then I think any parent realizes 20 years later that little things that you think are insignificant that happen on the road, they stick with those kids. Mm -hmm. And they pop out where you least expect them. And you realize all of that travel really was contributing to a well-adjusted, broad-minded individual. Ashley Steele, Tina Heety, thanks so much. And okay. uh, I think we've been able to inspire a few parents to get their kids out there on the road and experience the world. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Take my hand
4: and come along While you're with me my song this is a happiest, happiest day my
1: life.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton. Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Special thanks to the BBC's Wogan House Studios in London for their help this week. And we'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves.